There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ahoy, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Gordon J. Brown. He's got a new crime novel out. It's his ninth. It's a Euro crime thriller called Six Wounds. Now it's written under the name Morgan Cry for reasons that we'll chat about in the show. We talk about how Stephen King inspired uh, quite a main part of his writing routine. Also how he copes with knowing that he might be writing words that will get cut. And you can hear how he gains perspective over the story after he's just finished his first draft. So one of the things I'll do is as soon as I finish one, I, I put it away for a while. Like I, I like to have it away for like a month, maybe a couple of weeks. I have one read through, then I put it away to give it some distance. And what I'll do is start the next one before I finish that one. And the reason I do that is that by the time I go back to the one I've written, it's very fresh because I'm now on something else. And interestingly for me, it gives me a bit of perspective on the book because I tend to be reading it having not rewritten it five, six, seven times. I'm trying to get a fresh view on it. There is more on the way with Gordon J. Brown, Morgan Cry in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome to the show. Thank you for being there, for listening, following, streaming, downloading. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We find out where they write, when they write, how they write. What do they do that gives them the best chance of being as creative as possible to take that idea from their head, get it down onto the page and hopefully sell millions of copies? Now, this week we're with Gordon Brown. Not that one. Gordon J. Brown. He's published nine crime novels under a couple of different names, worked in all sorts of jobs, and is the co-founder of Bloody Scotland, one of the biggest crime writing festivals around. It's actually happening in Stirling this weekend, and I'll be there chairing two sessions. So it's the perfect time to chat about Gordon's brand new book. It's written under the name Morgan Cry. It's called Six Wounds. It's a Daniela Coulston novel. Uh, It's more of a traditional crime whodunit than some of his other books. And we talk about the process of what makes that different. Now, it's set in the Costa Blanca on the edge of Spain, where the body of a London gangster is found and Daniela is quickly assumed suspect number one. Everyone seems to be turning on her, so she needs to find the killer and fast. Now, come on, we're all thinking it. The nice thing about setting a novel in Spain is that you've got to spend a lot of time in Spain. 
research, of course. We'll talk to uh, Gordon about that in our conversation. You can hear how chatting in a pub gave him the idea for the story. Also, why putting someone on a flight helped him cut almost 40,000 words. You can hear how he manages to write pretty much anywhere. Uh, there's all that and so much more. And we dive into it with what Gordon J. Brown sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. My writing changes, view changes all the time. I'm one of these uh, oddball writers that uses a Mac and just sits wherever I sit to write. So I have seen the back of people's heads on airplanes. I have sat next to beaches. I have sat in pubs. I have sat in various different places from zoos to you name it. I've written in just about any way you can think you can get a Mac and sit down. That's what I see when I'm writing. So I'm not one of those... I sit in a room, people. Well, I guess the question there is, why? Why are you th- this have have laptop will travel when, because you are writing a lot and you're fairly successful, you could, if you fancy, just, you know, hole up in your office? I could. I, the reason I don't is how I started. So when I started 10 years ago, I'm coming up to novel number 10s coming out. When I first started, I was working, I had a job, a full-time job. So to write and get something done, I had to find a way to fit it in. That was the truth of it. I was also two two kids. We were actually moving house at the same time. So what I did was I got into the habit of taking my laptop on business journeys and writing on a train, or I'd be on a plane, or I'd be in an airport. And I just wrote little bits of what I was doing. And that's how the first, the first novel that ever came out was written that way. And I just never get into the habit of changing that. For a while, I was working at the same time, so I just kept it going. And now you're as likely to find me on the bench in a park or sitting on my sofa or you name it, writing, rather than sitting in a room writing. I've never really, really found somewhere comfortable, if that makes sense. Um, And that's that's why I still do it. And if I do find somewhere, I love it. If I can find somewhere, it'd be less of a trek because sometimes it can take me a while to find somewhere to sit down. Are there any consistent places near where you are uh, up up in Scotland, maybe a local cafe, a park bench that particularly takes your fancy? Well, there's two things. There's, there are I my new series, uh, which I've written under the Morgan Cry. Both of those books, Thirty One Bones and Six Wounds, are set in Spain. They're not set in the UK. So one of the things I've had the luxury in the last couple of years is actually writing out in Spain. We're lucky enough, my wife and I, to own a small apartment in a little town called Javier, which is on the Costa uh, Costa Blanca. And I've written most of the last two books one way and the other in Spain. So. There's two favourite spots. One is my balcony. I will admit, I do use the balcony a lot because you can actually see a sliver of the med in the distance, and that, that that's inspirational. The other one is there's a number of cafes where I'm either on Cafe Con Leche or a bit later in the day on beer, and I rotate around them just depending how hot it is, what time of year it is, where I'm in the writing process. So I could probably name you the three or four cafes and the balcony in Spain has been my favourite places to write. Uh, just we'll get into the Morgan Cry books in just a second. What came first, though, for you? Was it being in Spain and being inspired or thinking, you know what? It'd be a good touch to write a book where I have to go to Spain every year to make it work. <laughs> yeah, the research is brilliant. Claim the research back. What are you doing? I'm sitting on the beach writing a book. It's research. Uh, funnily, my first books weren't set in Spain. The first ones were set in Glasgow. So from that point of view, when I got to the Spain books, I'd already purchased somewhere out in Spain a good few years ago. 
And the inspiration for the books came from sitting in Spain. So the ideas came from the fact that I saw some stuff in Spain. And that's how, so it it kind of then was a self-fulfilling prophecy that when I was there, I would write it. I didn't write all of it. I, I wrote it back in Glasgow as well. I flicked between Glasgow and Spain. But the beauty was the inspiration lay in front of me. It, it, it's, I, I'll talk about the books later on, but the actual inspiration for the books came from being in Spain. It was the act of being there that I actually gave birth to them. If it is just you and a laptop, uh, I guess we'll get as niche and nerdy as we can with that. We're very interested in you know, what software you're using, what notes you've got on your laptop, how you divide up folders, and then uh, the most geeky of all, what fonts do you use, Gordon? So run us through that in as much detail as you can. Right, so... I have a MacBook Pro 2013, which is coming up for 10 years old, and I write everything on it. And it's now at the stage, it's unbelievably, and I'm on it at the moment, and it still works. And it's every single book since 2013 has been written on the same Mac. It has been everywhere. It's battered. It's got scratches. It's got its faults. It's had issues at the moment. The return key doesn't quite work. So when you get to the end of a, a, set, a, a new paragraph, sometimes you have to press two or three times. I, I, I'm in love with my Mac. It's so reliable. I mean, this sounds so geeky, but it's the one bit of kit I've had in my life when I switch it on, it works. And therefore, from a writing point of view, it's been dropped, it's been kicked, it's had sand on it, it's had beer on it, it's had coffee on it, and yet it still goes. So I write on a Mac, but funnily enough, I write on Word. So I, I use Word only because I never learned uh, Pages, which is what um, Mac, uh, Mac uses, and I never went to use anything else. I just kind of use Word for the very reason that in my whole business life, all I ever did was write on Word. So it was either Word or PowerPoint or Excel. That's how I was, that's my business life. So I just started writing in Word. But I have to say, I am not as proficient as some people I know in using things like Word in terms of what it can do for you. I am I am I am still a basic start typing and then I have to figure out sometimes. I have no idea, for instance, when you need some alternative symbols, the only way I can find them is to go into the internet and put Mac, keyboard, alternate symbols, what are they? Because I can't find them. So I save it in Word, I put it in Word, but I'm I'm slightly more geeky than that in that what I also do is I send myself an email let me think about this. I probably send myself an email about every 15 minutes of what I'm working on. I, I will. I am scared to death of losing my latest bit of work or bit of editing. So what I tend to do is just send it to myself on email. And, and that way I know somewhere out in the cloud in Google or my own um, uh, mail account, there is a copy lying there that, that, that for me will mean that if I ever lose anything, I can go back and find it. Everything I've ever written is somewhere out there in the cloud. Um, and in terms of font, Times uh, New Roman, I tend, I t- uh, Times, I kind of I, I kind of like, from a, a classic point of view, it tends to be what I see. It's what the default type was. M- my issue tends to be that I, I, I type in double space, which is quite common to do. But I used to type, I used to increase it to, to three lines, three space, to give myself some clearance so when I was reading a line, I wasn't just reading the next one, but that, that did my head in after a while and I had to go back to the kind of old double space. So I do that and then I save it and then I have to back it up 
on a regular basis because I'm scared of losing it. And the only thing I've never done is opened a, a cloud account, which is just a bit dumb of me. But my tech skills, <laughs> I don't know whether they're just bad. I've just never done it. I should have done it, but I haven't done it yet. Does it all exist apart from you sending it to yourself? And I'm glad that you covered that because that would worry me as well. If I was on a, you know, almost decade old Mac that had been battered and bruised, I mean, I'd be paranoid about leaving things and losing stuff. Uh, does it, is it all existing on one document? Do you have uh, a few going around for your characters and your plot and what's happening there? Uh, it's, if I'm honest with you, it's a bit of a mess. Over the years, it's kind of grown arms and legs, the files. So my files should be neatly ordered by book. It should be really neatly ordered by, you know, the first edit, the second edit, etc. It isn't. And what makes it worse, when I started writing, I would pick the name for a book and I would stick with it. So the first book I ever wrote or got published was called Falling. However, I've got a habit when I'm looking at the next book of just calling it something so I'll, I'll just come up with a name in my head. It will never be the book title, and that becomes the master file. So, for instance, uh, when I was writing uh, uh, 31 Bones at the beginning, it was actually called – what was it called at the beginning? It was called The Wanted, just because uh, that's the name. The pub's called Sabuska in the book, and it's called The Wanted. That file has never changed. So one of my problems is I, I struggle to find my own stuff without using Spotlight on Mac because <laughs> I can't remember what I called it. I can't remember what the... the t- I, I should have this all organised by book title, etc., but I don't. And when someone says to me, by the way, could you send... Like, did you get a review for X book? I know it'll be on my computer. I just don't know what the file name will be to find it at times, which sounds incredibly disorganised and actually is. And it's just the way I've done it since the beginning. So none of my files ever say the title of the book in it which sounds kind of weird when I say it out loud. So when I'm writing, this this is the last few, oh, I think the last four or five novels, I've got into a new routine I didn't have before. I will get up about five in the morning, between five and 5.30, before anybody's around whatsoever. I will have a cup of tea, uh, probably a bit of toast, and then... I will either sit in the sofa or I'll go out for a walk, wherever I am, to find somewhere to sit down. I will then attempt to write 2,000 words. Uh, I took my inspiration from a certain Mr. King, who many years ago, when I read on writing, indicated that he wrote 2,000 words a day, every day, 365 days a year. And I had a view when I wrote my first book that if I do that, I could be as successful as Mr. King. So I decided that I was going to write 2,000 words a day. So I will sit from early morning until I get it done. If I don't get it done, I will still go back to it at some point during the day. I have to break that 2,000 words when I'm on the run. If I don't, I just feel like I haven't done a day's work. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it's slow. When I've done it, what I then do is I'll then go for a wander, a walk, Um, sometimes with my wife, sometimes on my own. And what I tend to do is spin what I've just written in my head and I'll tend to look at it and think, right, what would come next? Not detail. I don't really need that. I just need to give myself a little bit of direction and I won't go back to the house till I have it. I'll tend to wander around a little bit till I find it in my head and then I'll either put it in notes on my iPhone or I'll speak it or I'll, I'll write it down something. I'm not consistent with that. So when I come back the next day to set, what I'm able to do is say, right, 
I'll read the last little bit of what I did, and then I kind of know where it's going. And I do that for about, I would say, four or five days. And then I then have to stop, go back, and then what I'll do is reread the last 10,000. I will start where I was. I'll lightly edit it. I'll actually start to pull stuff apart slightly if it doesn't quite work, if the language feels wrong. But the reason I have to do that is if I don't, I kind of forget where I got to because I'm not one for having post-it pads post-it pads on the wall or notes for the characters or the plot. I very much tend to want to write the book from start to finish and then go back and fix it. So what I'll do is every four or five days, I'll then just take the Mac somewhere, sit down, and, uh, and there's one key thing I haven't told you, which is I cannot write in silence. I, I, I cannot sit and write with nothing. I need something. And my go-to choice is either trans stands from the 90s, loud, on my headphones, or electronic music, sometimes Finnish and sometimes UK electronic music, which uh, I use to block everything else out. So everything I've ever been written, I think, has been written to some form of beat from, well, either trans dance or electronic music. In fact, so much so I dedicated my new book to that when it came out. <laughs> uh, surely that can't always be the case when you're travelling. So say, for instance, you're, you're on a flight. You're on a flight somewhere. It's going to be six hours. Your flight leaves at eight o'clock. So it's practically impossible for you to get up at five and write. What are you doing then? Is it a case of, okay, I'm going to crack out my 2000 when I'm on the plane? Yes. I wrote two books on UA, I think it's 019 from Glasgow to Newark. I, I, I used to work with a business that had me out in New York about once a week, not once a week, two or three times a month. So it, the flight left at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and arrived in New York about one o'clock in the afternoon. And then when I got it back, it left at seven at night, and it gets in at about something like six the next morning. So when I was writing my books, this this is about three or four books ago when I was doing that, what I would do is get on the flight at nine o'clock in the morning, get everything, once the flight had taken off, plug in my headphones, get onto the laptop, and literally I would try and churn out my 2,000 words before I would do anything else, before I'd have a cup of tea, before, before I'd eat whatever it is they brought round to me, I would try and do that on the flight. And, and that, that I would do on a regular basis. Same if I was on a train. If I was going on a train from Glasgow to the Midlands, which I did a lot, I would do exactly the same thing. I would take the Mac out, power it up. I have a whole routine. I have to have my phone next to me. I have to have the Mac out. I have to plug in the headphones. I have to find the Word document. I have to make sure that maybe there's Wi-Fi on board because I like to save it by sending it. And then I'll just sit and lose myself in the page for the first however many miles it takes to get those words out the door. I, it, not all, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work like that. You know, things interrupt you, but I quite like, I, I'm quite disciplined when I sit down to do it. I just want to get it done if I can, because it gives me a sense of I've done my day's work. I, I, I usually, sometimes I haven't. I've had to lose a lot of stuff in the past. You're, you know, it's like any writer, you write stuff and then suddenly you think, well, that's going to disappear. But if I can get through 2,000 words a day, I kind of feel like I'm getting somewhere. I'm very jealous of your ability to go on a plane and, and kind of just hunker down with work. I guess if you're, you know, if you're doing it regularly, but I'm still at the point, and I fly a little bit, where you know, I have to get there and have my full English breakfast and I have to have like a pint of Guinness before at whatever time. <laughs> I, just, I, could not, I could not hack that. Listen, you said that um, 
the you do your two thousand words of a morning. How how long does that normally take when you sit down at half five ish? About two to three hours, three hours maybe. Um, sometimes not. Sometimes it drifts out, um, and, and it will it will depend. I think I find I think this is the same with most writers. Some days it's easy. Some days you're writing, and actually the stuff just flows. You you, you kind of hit a, a seam, a bit like mining. You hit a gold seam, and you just stay on it, and and it flies. And then I'll be through it as quickly as I can. I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you what the quickest is, but it won't be that long. Then there's other days. It, it's a bit like you've hit granite when you're mining. You know, you've got to that point where you know the gold's the other side of it, but you've got to churn your way through it. And I, that that can be turgid because. I've seen me more than once stand up and think this is not going anywhere. But I know in my head, if I just keep going, if I just keep pushing it, I will get through it. And I know if I quit, I have a negative attitude to the thing all day. All day I walk around thinking, I'll never get this finished. I've still got another 50,000 words to do. I need to get to the point where I've got a full stop at the end of it. So for me, that's that that that's that's the problem with doing it over a time is that I just want to get that number done. And when it doesn't happen, I beat myself up. But then it's not happened on loads of occasions. Lots of times things got in the way. You know, when, when I was when I was first doing it, I had kids who were around the house who had more interesting things to do than watch dad write. Uh, I have a wife who didn't particularly like being ignored. Uh, if I suddenly took a notion to writing, because I would go to the room, I would sit in the living room when they were on telly or I would sit in the bedroom or even worse, when we're out in the car, I'd sit in the passenger seat and type. <laughs> that definitely drives my wife daft, is that I'm just typing something while she's driving and she's trying to have a conversation. But I don't know why it works for me. It's, I just never found a space to sit down and do. I just never have so far. Now, y- you get your 2,000 words done, inspired by Stephen King, and, and he supposedly writes every single day of the year. Are you trying out 365? Uh, I really, and I, I had, I, I had ambitions. I well, you work out the math: three hundred sixty-five days times two thousand. You think, well, that's, that's a lot of books <laughs> I can get out the door. Um, the answer was no, and the reason that the reason it didn't is the sense of satisfaction getting to the end of a book uh, for me meant that you just went, well, I've actually got quite a bit of work to do to this before I can send it anywhere. So. The editing process then kicks back in. But Mr. King told it there was another bit of information and on writing that always stuck in my head was whatever you've written, doesn't matter what you've written, whatever book, and, and I talk to lots of authors about this, it, it, might, it might not be, if you're not on a deal, and even if you are on a deal, it just might not be the book that works. It might not be the book that flies. The worst thing to do is is to keep pushing away at the same thing if it's not working. So one of the things I'll do is as soon as I finish one, I, I put it away for a while. Like I, I like to have it away for like a month maybe, a couple of weeks. I have one read through, then I put it away to give it some distance. And what I'll do is start the next one before I finish that one. And the reason I do that is that by the time I go back to the one I've written, it's very fresh because I'm now on something else. And interestingly for me, it gives me a bit of perspective on the book because I tend to be reading it having not rewritten it five, six, seven times. I'm trying to get a fresh view on it. So one of the things I'll always do is be writing the next book. It doesn't matter what time you you talk to me. It doesn't matter if I've just handed in a new book. Very shortly after, I'll be writing the next book. The downside to that is I would say 
in the last 10 years, I probably have five, if not six, complete novels that I've never seen the light of day. Are they going to? Uh, <laughs> I'd love it. I, this is where you get to the point. You think, you know, you know, the, the publisher phones up and say, Mr. Brown, uh, we're, we're kind of looking, do you, you have to have any books, you know, under the bed or in the cupboard that you haven't quite given us? And I'm going to go, oh, do you know what? Funnily enough, I, 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 have, I have a bunch out there to do it with. A couple of them I think will, because a couple of them were written on, they were speculative. I had a deal with a publisher. I'd done the book I was doing. I, I'd started on the next one. And I was just looking to try and change direction. And sometimes I do that just by writing. I, I honestly, I just had a couple of ideas. And sometimes in between deals, I've written a couple of things where it hasn't got traction. It wasn't book one or two. It was the next book. So I think one day they will. There's a few from before I get published that will never see the light of day because truly when I was 20-odd, the books, and they're on paper. They're not even a computer. They're actually written in every bit of note paper you can find. Uh, those will never see the light of day because when I read them back, I realize there's a good reason why they weren't published, and that's basically because they're just not very good. How do you deal with that? I've spoken to many, many authors who uh, have written books and had to shelve them or know when they're writing words. So when they're writing their 2,000 words a day, they know, as you've mentioned, that, well, half of this is going to be cut. How do you... But writing is a craft. The reason Stephen King writes or does 2,000 words a day is to always to keep the muscles going. How do you cope with the knowledge that there's all this, like, wasted time, I guess, where you've, where you've contributed to something that isn't going to be read by someone? Actually, I wouldn't say it's wasted time because you don't know when you're writing it that's going to be the case. I always think the thing I'm writing now is the freshest, greatest bit of work I've ever done. I always love what I love the writing process. I love the blank page. So when I'm writing, I'm never thinking of that. In fact, I'm thinking the opposite. I'm thinking this is flying. This is great. This is a good thing to have. The bigger problem is if you get rejection or if you get. Uh, something back from the editor which you know slashes it to bits that doesn't happen that often but one of the things I've always realized is that from an editorial point of view they're not trying to ruin the book they're genuinely trying to make the book better so that you need to take on the chin if you get a rejection for a whole book which I've had I've had you know my agent sent out some books and it didn't go anywhere again you just have to take it in the chin you just have to say look it might not be for now it might be for later. It might not be for that publisher. I've got a classic case at the moment of two books I wrote, one pre-lockdown and one in lockdown, which went out uh, to separate publishers in between the current deal I have and got no traction at all, and I just put them to one side. And then a year and a half later, I happened to be talking to a fellow author, and their publisher were looking for books. So I dug them back out, sent them, and they've taken both. So you just never really know. But I think as an author, you have to take it in the chin. Criticism, you have to take in the chin. You just have to learn to swallow hard. That doesn't mean that when a rejection letter comes in or the edits come in, that I don't feel like throwing my trusty Mac out the window. But I have to, I have to get past that. I'm fairly sure it survived getting thrown out the window. It survived everything else. <laughs> when the words aren't coming, when you're really struggling with the 2000, uh, what do you do to try and uncog it is there i mean i know you're listening to trance is there a particular track is there a you know a cup of tea or coffee that really helps you pull through uh i i tell you it really helps me now this okay we bit of diversion i've been marketing for 35 years that's consultancy and working for large businesses as well 
But I also had a creativity training business for about 15 years called Brain Juice, which was helping companies be more creative in thought and action. And it, and, it, and it was based on a whole set of principles that are very sound about creativity. And as a result, I spend my time trying to get people out what I used to call the river, which is when you're in the river and it begins to dry up writing-wise, you can't find anywhere to go, you can't swim any further, you have to find a way of getting out that river, coming up some fresh thinking and getting back in. I used to call that getting out the river and getting back in the river. It was, And the trick was, how do you get back into the river? How do you get back into full of water and how do you go swimming again? And strangely, it kind of comes back to, I'm sure someone, you've been told this a hundred times, Raymond Chandler, who famously said, you know, from writer's block, he always went through that process of, if ever he was stuck, he just imagined the door was kicked down and there was a guy standing there with a gun and what would happen next? And that technique of just left fielding yourself, as I would call it. So when you're stuck saying, right, okay, this isn't going particularly well, that's the moment I'll do something a little bit extreme in the writing and I'll just see where it takes me. I might not use it. I, probably I will go back and edit it out, but it will get me out that river. It will get me out that dry river for long enough to get back in and start moving again. And that's what I do every time. And I'll use the strangest objects around me to do it. I'll look at a picture on the wall and I'll see it. At the moment, I can see the picture of the moon over the water in the med. And I would just say, okay, so what if the character in the moment decided to change his mood and tonight he's going for a swim in the med and he drowns? Now, I'm never going to do that to the character, but doing that to me will give me somewhere else to go and I'll then be able to come back to the story and go, oh, no, that's not a bad idea. Maybe he doesn't drown, but maybe he knows someone that drowns and maybe that person's important to his life and maybe that affects what he's doing just now. So that's how I'll tend to do it. I know it sounds a bit convoluted, but it's not really. Uh, no, I mean, if it works. Are you writing that down? So in that example, are you writing like a separate draft where you're your man is jumping into the med and dying. Yes. So what I'll do is mentally do it. So I'll mentally say to myself, right, I'll stop writing and I'll mentally go for about five or 10 minutes, make a cup of tea, go back down and think that through, right? And then what I'll do is I'll wait till it connects itself to the story again. And so that that bit wouldn't work because say I'm in Glasgow and I'm the the character sitting in a pub in Glasgow. Well, going for a swim in the med is not really going to work. But that very example there might be well, actually he knew someone that died at the canal, the Fourth Clyde Canal, and that pair. And that's what I will then start right. I'll go. God, that could take me somewhere nice because I don't tend to plan the ending. I tend to write as I I tend to surprise myself. I always think that's great because I'll surprise the reader. I don't tend, I have a slight arc in my head, but I haven't planned it all the way out. I just kind of write it as I go. So that allows, that might even change the whole direction of the book. It wouldn't be the first time that I think my book's going to be about X and it turns out to be about Y because one of those moments just changes everything and gives me a far better idea. So for me, that's one of the fundamentals is get up, get away from the book for five minutes, doesn't matter, find something else to think about somewhere else to go then see if you can connect it back to the book and and that's what i used to teach businesses all the time when they get stuck in a rut when a meeting or when you were trying to come up with new innovation and for me it's a really powerful technique and it can be anything you can think about a cushion you can think about a flower you can think about a tv screen you can think about what you saw last night in the cinema it doesn't matter what it is as long as it disconnects you from where you are then you try and drag it back some part of that idea and that's 10 books worth I've been doing that I don't think it shows at least I hope it doesn't show (laughs) I never thought of that 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we'll be back with more from Gordon in just a sec. Uh, Very quickly, if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do, if we've given you any help along the way uh, through over 230 episodes now, if you've learned something on this podcast that has helped the way that you tell stories, if it has made a little tweak perhaps or a huge change to your writing day or space, uh, you can say thank you for that by becoming a backer at Patreon. Just a small pledge keeps us going. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as possible and seriously. I can't emphasise it enough. I know things are really tight. It, it doesn't have to be a lot at all. Anything you can spare goes an enormously long way. I'm eternally grateful. And I thank you so much for that. Um, for it, you get our thanks. You get merch. You get bonus content. There is even a way for your book to sponsor the show. So if you've written something, if, if you would like more ears to hear about it, uh, well, let me do that for you. Let me plug away. I can do that. Become a backer. Just a few dollars a month. However much you can spare, it helps us keep going. You can help us out and support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Gordon J. Brown, a.k.a. Morgan Cry, talking about his new novel. It's his ninth. It's called Six Wounds. It's set in the Costa Blanca, where Daniela Coulston is the prime suspect in the murder of a prominent gangster. She needs to find the killer and clear her name fast. Now, in this half, we talk about that pseudonym, and why, you might have guessed it, a prominent ex-prime minister finally helped convince him. Uh, also, we find out why a conversation in a pub gave him the idea for this new book. Well, a couple of conversations, really. And we pick things up talking about his home, Scotland. Now, Scotland has a legacy of crime fiction. Uh, Gordon is the co-founder of a big crime writing festival there, Bloody Scotland. It's on this weekend. There's Ian Rankin. Val McDermid, to name but a few. Why is that? Why does Scotland do crime fiction so well? Here's what Gordon thinks. We've got a history of it 
if you go back in time, there, there is a history, you know, Bucking, there's a history of, you know, uh, Conan Doyle, that, that um, the, there's a history of Josephine Tay. There, there's an older history of crime that's in Scotland that was around that's extremely, extremely good. But I think one of the things that, if you take a moment, Willie McIlvaney, who wrote the Laidlaw trilogy, which kind of gave birth to that um, dysfunctional older detective whose life's a bit rubbish, who has an alcohol problem, et cetera, et cetera. Willie inspired a lot of people. And, and those people, so the likes of Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, Denise Mina, Chris Brookmeyer, there's a whole bunch of them out there. Not, not saying it was just Willie, but, but the, their writing in turn has inspired another generation of writers. And it is a bit self-fulfilling because that whole tart noir, depends whether you like that phrase or not, actually has a kudos about it. That It was one of the reasons we started Bloody Scotland was to celebrate that very type of writing and to encourage new writers. The, the writers 10 years ago when we started are now the writers that are the main writers of the time. And I think if you ask why Scotland, I think the two, the two phrases that always come to mind is dark stories and dark humour. That, that there's something about Scottish crime writing that allows you to approach very dark subjects, but you also get those moments of gallows humour, which comes through a lot of the Scottish crime writing. It's not necessarily prevalent in a lot of other writing. I'm not saying other countries don't do it, but Scotland has got a habit, even in the darkest moments, you know, the, the worst things have happened in front of you, there's always that bit of humour. And that's because that's how people really deal with it. And I think the third thing, the magic trick, is we've just had so many good writers. That combination of just magically finding writers who just consistently put out books encourages and inspires other authors to be part of that in Scotland. They've they've got a legacy to look at. You can actually almost name them. You know, if you look at the names there, every time you talk about it, there's a list of Scottish writers, and the young writers can aspire to that, and they'll become the famous ones. That, that's that's the beauty of, of, of the whole process is they will then continue that because other people will see them be successful. So we have, at Bloody Scotland, we have the McIlvany Prize, which is the Crime Book of the Year Prize, which and we also have a debut prize, which is for people writing their first book. And that's very much about inspiring new writers, new writers to, to, to be part of that, 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 that whole magical thing that is Scottish crime writing. But it's not an exclusive club. Bloody Scotland, we have people from all over the world. It's not just Scottish people. But I think there is something quite special that the Scottish crime writers like to belong to. Now, the new book, <clears throat> Six Wounds, uh, this is under a pseudonym of Morgan Cry. I'm always very interested in pseudonyms because it's not like this one is a secret. Some are kept under lock and key, but this one is is not a secret. I'm chatting to you now as, as Gordon and, you know, in your books, I'm sure somewhere it says who you are. What? Just very quickly before we get into the story... Why Why the switch when everyone knows it's you? Previous to Six Wounds is the second of the series. The first book is 31 Bones, uh, and they're set in a fictional town on the uh, Costa Blanca called El Descaro, which I'll be honest with you, I talked about Javier earlier on where we've got a place. It's the same place. I just changed the name. Before that, I'd actually written four thrillers uh, set in the US, partly set in the US, some in Scotland, under the name Gordon Brown, and there's two issues out of that. One was the publisher that I moved to for the Spanish series had a conversation about the, the dissimilarity between the books. Ones are very high-paced thrillers. These are much more crime books, you know, uh, murder mystery books in a many way. And they were saying, will there be a confusion in people's heads? And I wouldn't be the first author to have two names for two different series. 
The other thing, if I'm brutally honest with you, is that the Gordon Brown thing, I've I've fought it for the best part of, I don't know, eight years, and and it won't go away. And if you search Google, you're likely to find the ex-Prime Minister, then you're going to find me. So the publisher said, would I be interested? And I actually, it was me that said to the publisher, sorry, in the first place, maybe we should try another name. And they said, yes. Yeah. So what happened was that I needed to come up with a name. And uh, the name, just to let you know, my dad's name was Morgan. Uh, my dad was a policeman in Glasgow, police for 25 years as a constable. Uh, and I've also got a younger brother called Morgan and another brother with the middle name Morgan. So, and my grand's maiden name was Morgan. So I thought, well, that, that seems like a good name. And cry because it was just a bit crimey. So from my point of view, when I changed it, the only thing is I had to phone my brother up and say, uh, do you mind if I use your name? <laughs> which, which was a bit odd, to be honest with you. And he laughed, but he agreed it didn't have a problem. So the Morgan Cry name is going to be associated with the Spanish, uh, what do you call it, uh, crime books, the books that are actually set in Spain amongst the Spanish expat community, or the British expat community, should I say. The new one then, this is Six Wounds. Uh, talk us through the first moment that the idea for this book came into your head. What was the initial seed of an idea? Two seeds. One about writing about expats was sitting in a pub uh, talking to an expat in Spain who announced to me in no uncertain terms that he was currently playing the fourth hole at a golf course in Bournemouth. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sitting in a bar in Spain. I said, sorry? And he goes, yep. He said, there's a four ball out, me and my three mates. And I was like, "I, I really, like, I thought this is, I don't know what's, I don't know where this conversation is going. And then he said, yeah, I play every Saturday. I tee off at two o'clock. And this was, we were Saturday. It was, it was three o'clock an hour ahead in Spain. So it was right enough timing. And I said, really? He says, I said, and then he said, yeah, I go back to the UK regularly. I buy tickets for Ryanair. He says, I buy X amount of tickets a year. I go back and I play golf. And I, I'm really confused by now. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Then it turns out what he actually means is to get around the uh, expat rules about how long you can stay in Spain and live in Spain without paying tax, he was flying under the radar. He's one of those guys that lived out there, was expat, probably did his job for cash, lived in a rented apartment. And the reason he was playing golf was he wasn't. What he'd done was he'd got his mates to agree to put his name in the golf club every Saturday at 2 o'clock as a four ball, and they played as a three ball. And the reason he bought the Ryanair tickets was so he had a history, so he could go, if the Inland Revenue ever turned up, he'd be able to say, oh, no, no, I've not been in Spain. I I play golf every Saturday at Bournemouth, and I have all these plane tickets to prove that I haven't been in Spain. So he thought he was being really clever about coming up with this kind of backstory about how if anyone ever asked him, he'd be able to prove he was living in Britain, not in Spain. And I thought, I'm telling random man in bar. Well, then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a tax inspector from Britain. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I did actually. And then I had to say about two seconds later, no, I'm not. But what got me was he wasn't the only one to tell me a story like that. I, I was amazed how many really wonderful expat stories there are in Spain. And I thought, well, that, that, there must be something in there. And when I wrote the first book, it was very much about a crowd of expats who were in this very down market typical British old pub of which it doesn't actually exist although there's a place in the town 
And when, when it came to Six Wounds, Six Wounds was inspired because there's a, there's a dead body right at the beginning by a conversation in the pub where I'm watching telly, watching the football, and behind me, these two guys are chatting about how to get rid of a dead body. I'm not kind of literally chatting about how would you get rid of a dead body. And they went through this range of how would you do it so you weren't caught. And, and, and I listened to them talk about this. And I have no idea. I, I assume it was a pub chat. You know, that sort of like we've had a few drinks. How would you do it sort of thing? I, 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 if it's real, I've never found out about it. But one of the things they said, which just kind of ran away was they said, well, would you not put the body somewhere else where other people would be blamed? That's what the conclusion they got to. You would take the body and put it somewhere that other people would pick up the blame for it. And that's literally what inspired the start of Six Wounds was that there's a raid on a pub, the pub that's central to the books. And when the raid finishes, and it's a raid by another pub, they play this stupid April Fool's game where one pub steals the other's maskets. Um, it's a real daft game. They break in to steal the masket in the pub called Sabuska, which is the centre to the book. And when they leave, there's a dead body behind. And it becomes a case of, well, we know who he is, but who killed him? And, and, and bizarrely, you're talking about writing process. That's, that, that's my first ever real murder mystery book. It's the first book where there's a dead body at the beginning, a bunch of suspects, and the main protagonist, called Daniela Coulston, has to figure out who it is because she's under suspicion. And I didn't really mean to write a murder mystery book, but I did. That's, that's one of those moments you asked about where creative stuff goes. It just became a murder mystery book. That, that's where the book went. So that's where the idea came from. And then this is very open-ended, but then what happens? So how much time are you give, do you give yourself to sit on that and, and you know, work it in your head? I, I know you said you don't plot extensively. You have an idea of the arc, but you like to be surprised come the final page. How much, like, how much time are you giving yourself before you'll start typing that first sentence? Not much. That day, that night when I went up the road, I didn't have the start of the next book. And that thought process, just, I sat down, I would have said the next morning, not early probably, because if I was in the pub, the chances were it wasn't a five o'clock in the morning start. But I sat down and, and I didn't write that in at the beginning. When I wrote in at the beginning, what I was more interested was this idea about leaving something somewhere it shouldn't be. That was more what I took out of that conversation because as a start to a story, I just felt there's something quite, I don't know what it is about that, but there was something about finding something that should not be there and, and therefore the consequences to the people around them of that thing being there. And because they'd said body, it did turn into a body. But actually the beginning of the book's more about how the two pubs, the raid on the pubs, it's the, the the body itself, at one point when I first wrote it, I was, it could have been solved very quickly. I could have just said in the next chapter, you know, the police come in and they find out who it is, blah, 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 blah. blah. But because I'd started so quickly in the way I write, the first 2,000 words, does it, don't, they basically get to the conclusion of the chapter. And when I started to write the next one, I thought, now what, what if the main protagonist is in the, you know, uh, up, cent up front and centre for this? How bad would your life be if you're innocent, but everybody else thinks you might be the guilty one? How does that affect someone? What did he do? What kind of actions? And that's what started to drive the narrative. It's what kind of things would the main protagonist do? And I love that situation. I love taking people and putting them in situations they would not normally face. For me, that is a wonderful way to, to, to move the writing forward because it always 
intrigues me how people react when they're in situations they shouldn't be in. And you must have read it. You, Dan, you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of authors. You must know that sort of situation where often what you see on the news, you think, oh, that's weirder than fiction. Why would someone do that? Why, why would they do what they did? And that motivation is a great way for me to drive the writing forward. I, I kind of like to have an arc in my head. Like I, I like to have what I would say is the big idea, a thought, a central thought about where this might go. But I won't have worked out all the twists and the kinks. That, and that arc sometimes changes. So sometimes what I'm saying is I think I'm heading one place and then suddenly it'll change and a better book comes out for it. I'm not a big one for writing down a whole synopsis of where it goes. Although, interestingly, for uh, a couple of the books I'm working on, I've had to give the publisher a heads up for the first time in terms of just saying where it might go. And that's been an interesting process for me because I'm not sure it will. It's, it's fine to say to the publisher, the book's going to go here. But I always work on the basis, there might just be a better idea out there than the one I come up with just now. There might not. So I, I tend to stay on a rail... I tend to have a kind of projection of this is where I'm going, but there'll be a spur on the line, and sometimes that spur's got a much better story. And, and it has got its downside. Sometimes that means rewriting what I've already done because it's all fine and well to change direction, but it won't make much sense to what went before. If, if you want, the, my all-time classic for this was I wrote a book um, in the thriller series in America, protagonist called Craig McIntyre. And in the third book in that, uh, in, a, in a book called Deepest Wounds, what happens is that it starts in North America. Uh, it's it, They're being chased through America. They end up in Canada, and eventually they get to Toronto. And when they get to Toronto, to get to the UK, because they believe there's a secret military base uh, uh, in the west coast of Scotland, I'll not go into the rest of it, but they believe it, they, they smuggle themselves on board a freighter, and they go right across the Atlantic. And during that trip in the Atlantic, they, they find out there's a lot of the people on board have a fight club, because I knew that happens in freighters because they're bored, so they have a fight club on board. They find out there's all stuff going on, and there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff happens in this boat. And then they get to Scotland, and the book kind of moves on from there. I sent it to the publisher, <laughs> and the publisher said, do you know how many words are in this? And I said, I did, 127,000. And my publisher went, there is no way that you can, it's not a 127,000 book. He said, you need to cut it back. You just have to find a way to take some stuff out. So I said, right, okay, how do I do this? So what I did was, when they got to Toronto, instead of getting on the boat and going all the way across the Atlantic and doing all the stuff in there, what do you call it? I took that all out and uh, lost 37,000 words. And what I did was I put them on a flight at uh, Pearson International in Toronto and flew them to Glasgow, which took me about 200 words. So that, that I lost 37,000. And that's still in my computer. There's 37,000 words that may one I, I always think there's a story in there. So that's what I mean about changing your mind. That was a publisher doing it to me or something comes along. And this, the book is miles better for it, just miles better. It didn't need that bit in the middle. You were talking about spurs in the road there, or on the track, rather. Uh, how do they just suddenly arrive? Do you just find yourself being dragged by your characters somewhere that you had no idea the story would go? Are you, are you seeing it through the windscreen or on, on the line a, a few miles before, to stretch that metaphor? No, no, you make sense. I write first person, present tense. All my books are written that way. Uh, I've written a few third person short stories. 
So I can only see the world through the protagonist's eyes because I'm constantly looking from their eyes because I can't go anywhere else. It's, I can't take a helicopter view on the world. So for me, what I'm seeing is the world uh, evolving in front of them. And the reason that makes a difference is that every day of life, when you're out walking or you're driving a car, you might make a change of mind. You turn left instead of right. You go to the shops early. You get a phone call. Something happens in your life that changes what's going to happen next. That's just the way life is. Because I don't have all the collateral that goes around having maybe six or seven different views building towards something, I have to build that inside the person's head. So when it happens to me, it's sometimes by happenstance because I think, oh, the character did this. I write it down. I think, hang on a minute. Just because, wait, and suddenly you'll have another idea altogether. Something will just completely pop out the blue because you've put yourself in that position. I talked earlier on, you know, if you're a bit stuck, sometimes I'll drop the uh, protagonist right in it just to change things. I'll just say, right, imagine the best friend next to them just drops dead. What would then happen? And sometimes that will stay in the book because it will just completely change the, where the book's going. So I don't tend to see it. What I do do is occasionally when I'm walking around boring my wife like trying to think what happens next she'll say something and i'll go that's just a much better idea than mine she, she did it recently i have to do a short story for an anthology that's coming out and it's to be based on one single word gone two thousand words short story has to be based on one single word just gone i wrote it got to the end and i wasn't happy with the ending and i walked around with my wife going round and round in circles wasn't getting anywhere then out the blue, my wife said, why don't you do X? It's bleeding brilliant. Best best idea, I think. <laughs> I've got to credit her on the, on the short story for it because it completely changed the whole book. So that's when I, when I talk about changes, I don't see them miles ahead, but when they happen, they can make a massive difference to your writing. Now, you said that this book is your, your first proper murder mystery and you've written thrillers before. At the point you discovered it would be a murder mystery, uh, how much thought did you give to the style that you are now writing this in and, and how the simple words on the page will be read different to how they might be if it was a thriller. So here's an interesting point. This is the second book in the, the Daniela Coulson series. Just to, to, to explain how that works, Daniela Coulson worked in an insurance company in the UK. Her mother, who's nearly 80, dies in the first book. It's not a, it's right at the beginning. And she inherits this pub in Spain full of these dysfunctional expats. And that's what lands her in the world of crime. So that's, that's kind of where she is. But the second book, she's still running the pub. And uh, one of the things I found was that I didn't intend to write this one as a murder mystery. It just became one because it kind of developed into one. But the big difference with writing a thriller and writing the murder mystery is that murder mystery is not much fun if you don't have some red herrings, some clues, if you don't have some misdirection, and also if you just don't keep the reader really interested in the why. Why is this important? You need to fix this. Why, why does this need to work? So strangely, the one thing that happens when you're writing those types of books is you have to go back in time sometimes. You have to go back into the book itself and say, right, I need, to, I need to change that. I need to make a suggestion that maybe this happened. I need to go back and fix this a little bit because what you really want to do is kind of tease people a little and take them down the journey, but surprise them at the end. Whereas with a thriller, sometimes you're just writing flat out. When I wrote the thrillers, it's almost like a chase scene. Not the whole book, but you can almost write it. And therefore, the surprises tend to be very sudden and kind of come at you. And the backstory is just more interesting because of the pace it's moving. 
when you're writing crime books, you have to be cleverer than that. I'm not saying thriller writers aren't clever because they are. But you have to remember that what you're going to try to do is when they get to the end, you'd love the reader to go, ah, so that's why. You know, because you might be like me, but if you get to the end of a book and the ending's not satisfying, the person tends to think the whole book wasn't satisfying. And, and that, for me, and in first person, that's trickier. I have to find ways of getting out of Daniela's head. I have to find techniques like she finds letters or she might overhear a phone call or it has to be ways of bringing other people into the, the, the piece. And that was tricky. Doing a murder mystery from a first person's point of view is trickier than I thought it was going to be. Did that come to you naturally when you've got to make these <clears throat> conscious decisions to kind of bring Daniela out of herself? So these things are happening perhaps without her knowing about it. You've got to change your style. Uh, how easily does that come to you? Was it a case of having to go away and read murder mysteries to figure out how they did it, the techniques that other authors are using? I think reading is the key. I, I read all the time. I pick stuff up all the time. I, I read for Bloody Scotland. I, I read a lot of debut work. In fact, it kind of depresses you at time because you read stuff that's so good you think, oh my God, like that's a debut novel and it's just brilliantly written. You know, it's really, really good. What 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 does work though for me when, when I'm when you're trying to do that, when you're trying to put together a story and you're trying to, 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 to tell it and you want to find techniques, you kind of have to not be obvious. So I, I'll give you an example. In the first book, I needed to introduce the characters. Now, I remember years ago reading a book, I can't remember the name, where it was the same written in first person and there was maybe about eight characters in the book and the way they introduced them was right at the beginning in a funeral. So the clever, thing, the, clever, the clever technique was the person goes to a funeral, has never met anyone there before, and literally meets every one of the main characters at the funeral in the first chapter. So you don't have to go through that pain of introducing them because you can talk about what they look like, how they talk to you, what their background was. And that was a great way to, to get the characters in quickly. And the way I did it in uh, 31 Bones was each of the main characters is interviewed by the police. And what I did was I found out what a Spanish police interview form looks like. And what I did was replicated that, and in each case, it tells you something about the character. It introduces the reader to the character, but in an interesting way, because effectively they've been interviewed by the police, not by Daniela, not by me. And that's one of those techniques I've used to, to try and take myself slightly out of it, because I just think the reader, it, it engages the reader, and it engaged me. Lastly, and this has just popped into my head, the 2,000 words that you try and write every day, uh, have you found that that normally aligns with your chapter length? Uh, no, and I do have problems with chapters. Sometimes when I'm on a roll, my chapter goes on for so long that when I eventually go back to it, I think, oh, that's, that's like an entire book that I haven't stopped. So you, you have to go back and do it and say, right, that's going to be the end of it. The one thing it will do, the 2,000 words, I tend to like to leave it, even if it's the middle of somewhere on a bit of a cliffhanger. I, I quite like to leave myself a bit of, I don't know where this is going, because they make for really good chapter endings when it does work. There's nothing better at the end of a chapter when you want to turn the next page just to find out what happens. So naturally, a lot of my cliffhanger endings come out of doing that process because I stop and I say, right, I'm going to finish now. I'd, sometimes I'll go past 2,000, you know, but I'll stop. But there's a natural stop point, and it usually leaves me wondering what's happening. That's how I tend to leave the day, which then means I have to go and think about it. 
And that is it for this week's episode of the show. Thank you so much to Gordon J. Brown for coming on the show. Uh, his new book is Six Wounds. It's out under the name Morgan Cry. You can get a copy now. If you are around, if you happen to be in Scotland this weekend, if you'd like to see and hear some of the best crime writers talking about what they do, talking about their new books, uh, get yourself to Bloody Scotland. I'll be there on the Saturday and Sunday chairing a few sessions. One about Americana. The other, I'll be in conversation with Joanne Harris and Janice Hallett. Uh, talking about uh, their runaway success respectively Uh, I think you can still get some tickets get to bloodyscotland.com for that Uh, in the meantime you can help us out at patreon.com forward slash writers routine support the show writersroutine.com and leave us a review on Apple now uh, because of my gallivanting around Scotland uh, also it's my birthday next week I I won't be able to bring you an episode this time next Friday. It's uh, it's just it's a very clogged up time. But I will bring you one uh, a week after that. Is is that October already, or is it kind of late September? Whatever. I will bring you so you know two weeks today. You'll get a brand new episode of the show. Until then, you can get in touch at writersroutine.com, and I'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.